0: I'm excited to jump into the God's Word today. Matthew 6, 25 through 34 is our text. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Let me pray and we will read this together. Father, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, Lord, we desire for your grace to touch our hearts and We thank you that, Jesus, you are not only our redeemer, but you're our teacher. You're teaching us here in your words uh, from your great sermon. Uh, As we look at the topic of anxiety, Lord, there's so many ways where maybe we come on a Sunday to sort of get away from the things that make us anxious in our daily life. But, Lord, I pray that we would be able to, uh, wherever we are this morning, turn those over to you. And hear what it is that you would have to say about who who we are and who we are in Christ. Lord, bless our reading and hearing of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 625, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's Word. I think it's important to dive into a text like this to, to have a few disclaimers and, you know, understand where we all may be coming from. Because the reality is when you, we talk about a, a word like anxiety or a topic like anxiety, we are going to approach the Scripture with some predisposed view of the topic. And you, you may be, you know, conjuring in your mind previous sermons that you've heard or previous, you know, Christian leaders and what they've talked about it. And so, I, I want to warn us against the extremes of oversimplifying the human existence. And what I mean is, um, we could come to the text and think that human, human, uh, the human ex- existence and experience is predominantly spiritual, and therefore, all of our needs and all of our issues can only be dealt with and should only be dealt with in the spiritual realm. In other words, to be blunt. If you're anxious, just pray. That would be overly simplified. But we could, have another, we could have the other extreme or another version of oversimplification and say, well, the human experience is mostly material. It's mostly chemical. And therefore, all of my problems can be resolved exclusively by medicine. And therefore, Jesus' words are obsolete. I want to guard us against both of those Because no matter where we are, no matter what levels of anxiety we deal with, um, what Jesus is saying is not to uh, put off a holistic approach to addressing it, Uh, but whatever he is saying and what he is saying this morning as we will talk about it, it applies to all of us. On some level, there's ways for us to implement that without hitting one of these extremes. All right? Is that good? So... We've been going over uh, excerpts from Jesus' greatest sermon, a sermon that certainly is probably the most talked about sermon in all of history, and uh, World Upside Down, because Jesus, when he is preaching and teaching us here, it's so opposite of the way that we would normally go and the way that the world tells us to go, in fact, encourages us to go. Um, and, and we get to chapter six, and Jesus is dealing with our inner life, things we do in secret, prayer, uh, fasting, and almsgiving, and our outward life, how we engage with the world, things like treasures and anxiety. And so this morning's text, uh, sermon is entitled Addressing Anxiety. <clears throat> And three things that Jesus is, is helping us here with the topic. He's saying, number one, the reason for anxiety. Number two, the replacement for anxiety. Number three, the removal from anxiety. The reason, the replacement, the removal. And again, I would just add, We're not specifically talking about the clinical version here. We're talking about the level of anxiety that we all deal with. The reason for anxiety. First of all, let's consider, I mean, my disclaimers this morning are pointing to a reality, is that we are 21st century individuals trying to understand and interpret a text written 2,000 years ago, thinking that. Our word is exactly the word that is being used There's a one-to-one relationship. Well, that's, that's not exactly the case because when we consider the word anxiety or anxious, uh, the Greek, the original word, and how it's used in the New Testament, first of all, three times Jesus is telling us don't be anxious. I, I, and I, he, He's loving, He's compassionate, He understands. So there's something good here. There's something, in fact, gentle about what he's saying and how he's presenting this. Uh, Secondly, he's not talking about, and don't be anxious to don't care about your life. I mean, we have to look at what Jesus is saying in the backdrop of Proverbs chapter six. Consider the ant, you know, he goes about his storing up of food and therefore you should be diligent. That's what the Proverbs tell us. Jesus isn't going against that. In fact, when you consider the New Testament where Paul is addressing people in Thessalonica and they're being idle and not working because they're thinking, hey, the second coming is coming soon, therefore I shouldn't work. Paul says, if a man doesn't work, man or woman, he or she shouldn't eat. You need to work. So certainly this is not, you know, if you were in, you know, middle school or high school, this is not something to take home and say, you know, Jesus says, I don't need to do homework. I shouldn't be anxious about my life. That is not what he is saying. So, um, anyways, now that we've avoided that, let's consider an example of what he is talking about. I remember back in 2003 and 2004, I was raising funds to move from North Carolina to New York City to be a campus missionary and to start our campus ministry with our church there that had been started after 9-11. And, you know, we just heard from a missionary, and we're familiar with the topic. Oftentimes, not always, I didn't say always, often, um, American missionaries are raising money and going to a place where the economy is not as strong, right? The U.S. dollar is stronger than a lot of places. Not true in the EU, but true in other places, when I was raising money in North Carolina, which from a standard of living or cost of living perspective is about a one-to-one with the national, I was raising money to go to New York, which is about a 2.5 times standard, you know, like cost of living. I felt like I was, I felt like I was going into a whole different country, like a different economy. Like, you know, for every dollar you're giving me, it's only going to get me about 40 cents, you know, when I move. And so, I felt like, Lord, how in the world am I going to make it? I literally thought, how am I going to eat? I was single. Um, and, you know, you think about that. Um, and uh, how am I going to live? How am I going to pay for rent? Um, you know, I think about, I, I had a car, and I, was, I parked on the street, and I paid the price for it, like people would use it as a table and chairs. Um, While well, they would eat, you know, chicken and things on the on the sidewalk, but so I had a lot of dents in my car. Is my point, but I, you know, you, if you park in a parking garage, four hundred bucks a month you could you could pay as a resident. How in the world? And I didn't do that, but how could I make it? Jesus is talking about when you are expecting a child, and you're thinking, how are we going to do this? Or maybe if you're thinking about if you're a couple and hey. I, children? There's no way. We can't afford that. Or at at our stage, thinking about sending sending a kid off to college in a few years. How in the world are we going to do that? Or for some of you, it's how can I retire? How is that going to work out? Or fill in the blank. It's this view of how can I, how in the world, Lord, or how am I going to make it in this next thing? That's the anxiety. It's the thing that paralyzes us. It keeps you awake at night. It creates this, as I'm talking about it, maybe this is even happening now, you feel it in your chest. You feel it in your gut. You feel your shoulders getting tense. You feel, you you guys tracking with me? You're looking a little sad this morning. (laughs) Hopefully, it'll get better. Jesus is saying this is being anxious about your life and your body. Notice in verse 25, there's two areas he, he focuses on. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. You can circle that in your, in your mind. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. Circle that in your mind. What you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Jesus is telling us this realm of anxiety has to do with our life and our body. You could even say, although that's correctly translated, as if I had the um, credentials to say otherwise. But what you could even say is the word for life here is the same word that we would use for soul. And, and, the, and what you could say is, in other words, Jesus is saying, don't be anxious about anything that deals with your soul or your body your body and soul the whole complexity of human existence body and soul don't be anxious in 21st century united states i know that we're not all we were not all born in the united states but we're all here at the moment except for those of you who are in belished of course but by and large where we are different than Jesus' audience is this. They were thinking about their daily anxiety was about existence and survival. For most of us, that's not our daily anxiety, unless maybe you moved to New York City or something like that, then that is. But um, our, our daily anxiety is about performance and approval. That's the issue of our life and body, our body and soul, if you will, performance, approval. And Jesus is saying, don't be anxious about your performance. Don't be anxious about approval. Let's think of briefly here the the realm of social media. Because if we're going to talk about anxiety and performance and approval, I think that you hit, that's the trifecta, hit right there in that one um, genre, you you know, or entity, social media, Mega anxiety, right? All the studies you think about what's for teenage girls or just for anybody who's breathing and has a pulse and uses it as a means of communicating. Because you're seeing all the highlights of everyone else's life and you're comparing it to the lowest parts of your own. And you're like, I don't measure up. I am not that interesting. My life is terrible or all the other things that are depressing thoughts. What's going on with that? The realm of anxiety is really dealing with the realm of our false self. It's the thing about you and me that says, I want to project to others a better version of myself than it really is true. Social, we don't need social media to do that. Social media just helps us to magnify and amplify that. But we do that on regular, everyday interactions here's a case in point I remember in the 90s I went to college now for some of you that seems like what were the 90s you know because it's so you're so old and others of you are thinking well wow, you're so young but it is what it is and in the 90s I was in it was in that just as sort of kind of current events in the era of like affirmative action right you consider ethnicity in how you were admitting students. And I was definitely aware of that, as was everyone else at the time. And we're, you know, maybe that's going to go away. We'll see what happens. But uh, I recall, so I did go to Duke University. I, I apologize. Um, and uh, it was one of those things, just to kind of put you in my framework. You, I would tell people, yeah, I go to Duke. And my mom would say, you know, or my parents, hey, he goes to Duke. And they kind of like, Oh, well, what sport do you play? You know, I actually went there to study. So um, anyways, so being an African-American and being there, I I felt this burden. Like, I want to prove to everybody this whole affirmative action thing, that had nothing to do with it. And so I want to be number one in my class. yeah, I actually thought my wife just gave me those eyes. Uh, I did think that, and I, I tried for that. And I remember every at the end of every semester, you used a phone back then, like one that had a cord, and I would call and get my GPA and or in my ranking, class ranking, and it just kept getting lower and lower and lower. And I'm like... I remember how many of us matriculated. I'm not even sure how many people are behind me at this point because I'm so far down. Um, But what was happening there, there was a lot of things happening, but there was this false self. I wanted to project, hey, this is who I am, but God didn't ask me to do that. And as a result, I was dealing with a level, like just intense anxiety, and Jesus is saying, don't be anxious, okay? So, Eric Johnson, who's a, who's a Christian and um, he's in the realm of, of the social sciences, he says this about the false self. He says, as images of God made for God, when we are without God, we are relationally compromised. Yes, we need other humans, but without God to serve our meaningful relational center, we are inevitably motivated to be on top, to be admired, or to serve others selfishly and one way or another to try to get them to meet our needs. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that the human existence, because we enter into this world where God is not our relational center. And Jesus, who was giving us this message, the Sermon on the Mount, and He's saying, as one who follows me and is a part of my kingdom, this is what it means for God to be your relational center, your heavenly Father. We are used to needing to be on top, Needing to be in the center of our universe, needing to be admired, needing to get others to meet our needs, and therefore, we go through life with a lot of anxiety. Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life or body. This leads us to the replacement, number two, the replacement for our anxiety. Now, really, Jesus is very practical here and deep. Deep. See, I think he's giving us both a replacement therapy and a deep theological understanding. And here's what I mean. Do you see what Jesus says? He doesn't just say, you know, he doesn't just, you know, beat us up and say, hey, stop being anxious. What's wrong with you? He says, don't be anxious. But then he says, consider. In verse 28, well, in, in, in verse 26, he says, he says, look at the birds. And then he says in verse 28, consider the lilies. And there's other parts of Jesus' you know, sermon where he's being hyper, You know, it's hyperbole. Like, don't actually cut off your hand if it makes you sin. He's not actually saying that. That's hyperbole. But here, I think this is, could be taken as literal as, as possible. In other words, it's a replacement therapy. You're worried about how you appear to others. You're worried about your life, your body, your soul. Jesus is saying, go outside. Go for a walk. Look at the birds. Look at the fields. Look at the native plants. You know, you're driving down the freeway and you see the median. Look at all those native wildflowers. You go in your backyard or you go into, you know, the arboretum or whatever it is, and you, you, you listen to the birds, and think about how your Father in heaven provides for all of them. You see, he's repl- you, 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 you can't be free of anxiety if you're just thinking, oh, I've got to stop being anxious. You have to replace it with something, and Jesus gives us something to replace it with, His creation, meditating on His goodness to all of creation that if He can take care of that and all of its complexity, and, you know, we have so many PhDs in, the, in our room where we get into the weeds on the complexities, God is sovereign over all of that. He can take care of you. That's the replacement therapy, if you will. But here's the deep theological understanding. You see, because He says Look at the birds, they neither sow, verse 26, nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. What do birds do? Now, again, we've established Jesus is not saying go, you know, be lazy, don't worry about the future. No, we, we do need to work hard. You should save money and you should do those things. But what he's saying is birds, they're going around, they're looking for, you know, whatever, probably not like this. Um, I've never flown, so you know, I don't know. Um, but they're, and, he ever he ever seen? Have you ever seen the bird lady? Do you know what I mean? Or maybe it could be a guy, you know. But I'm just saying, I I've seen a bunch of bird ladies in my life. It's the it's a bag of they. She'll take a bag of bread and crumbs or crackers, or and then it, well, okay okay my contact city, and then you get like 50 pigeons. Following, and you're like mad, like, what are you doing? You're gonna mess up the whole sidewalk here. But, you know, throwing out the crumbs and all of that. What Jesus is, and and so you could look at that and say, well, isn't she providing for the birds? Jesus is saying when birds are going around intentionally looking, or even if somebody intervenes, it's actually your Heavenly Father who's providing. The deep theological understanding is this idea of providence, that God controls all things. He is in control at all times, even when we are making deliberative decisions. Here's an example. You have to understand that these, maybe maybe two, we'll give you one at least. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching, verse 23, he talks about Jesus his death on the cross, and he says this, catch this. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who was responsible for Jesus' death, God or people? The answer is yes. Yes. Because God is providential, He overseeing everything. Regardless of the bird lady, regardless of the the uh, the two the, the bunnies that were in our, our backyard, and um, they were they were baby bunnies, and one got out of the nest, and the two crows that came by and snatched one up. Regardless of the means, God is in charge, and regardless of the ups or the downs or the discouraging news that you've just heard, regardless of that conversation you have with your boss or with your doctor, God is in control. That's the deep theological understanding. The other example, I won't go into the detail, but the other great example of this in the Scripture is Joseph, at the end of Genesis 50, and you know the story of Joseph, his brothers sold him to to go into Egypt, and he became a slave, and then he ended up in jail. And then he becomes effectively prime minister in Egypt, and when they get really nervous that he's going to come down on them at the end of the book of Genesis, he's saying, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is providential. So he gives us a replacement for our anxiety, something very practical, but also a deep understanding that you're not in charge You don't have to be in control. You don't have to be omnicompetent because He is. Lastly, we've talked about the reason for anxiety, the replacement for anxiety. Now, let's talk about the removal from. And I worded that specifically because God wants to remove you from that place of anxiety. Because here's the reality of what's going on. He says in verse 32, he says the pagans, the Gentiles, the non-believers, they're going around seeking all these things that you're being anxious for. What is he saying? These are people who don't even believe in God, right? But you are called to follow me and be a part of my kingdom. I want to replace the relational center of your life, take you off the throne, and allow your heavenly father and your great king to be the one who's in the center. That's how you get removed from anxiety. Do you see how he refers to the Lord, how the, how our Lord refers to the Father, I should say? You know, two ways. In verse 26, he talked about how our Heavenly Father feeds the birds. And then he says, your Heavenly Father, in verse 32, knows that you need them all. And then in verse 33 he refers to God as king. It's about the kingdom. And so for you to have to to be brought out of that realm of anxiety. And by the way, it's a process, not a once and for all. You've got you, you've got you've got you've got to be removed from that center. And and you need and you need for your heavenly father and our great God and King to be on the center of your life. Because as a father, he's loving, he cares, he sees, he pays attention to the details of your life. And as a king, he's completely resourceful. He has everything under his control. And in your heart, if you say, effectively what you're saying is, God, not only do I want to have faith in you for my salvation, but I want to actually believe in you for my provision. We'll go back to Eric Johnson. He says this. He says, without a strong sense that God is is their psychological center, anxiety about disappointing others comes more easily as well as being overly concerned with what others think and working j- hard just to please them, a tendency that reflects some degree of codependency. What is he saying there? He's saying, as we've talked about, our life, though at times could be and, and has been for many of us about existence and survival, predominantly it's about performance and per- approval. It's about, it's about being overly concerned with what other people are thinking about you. It's about you trying to prove this or that, about having admiration or um, esteem from others. Yet, when God is your king and your father, you don't need all of that. And you, in fact, you realize that no one else can provide that for you. So, let me ask you, are you anxious about your life? Or your body? Are you overly consumed with performance and approval from others? And it's very sneaky. Perhaps you should go before the Lord and ask, Holy Spirit, show me where this is true. Where it is true, you are only going to be anxious. Yet Jesus graciously and gently calls you into a place Of being free and by the way that is part of us our witness to the world to live this way it's part of what it means to be a community where there's life and vibrancy and love for one another that we could be authentic and that we could even be challenged when we're not You have to replace your anxiety with an image of His provision and creation and with a theological understanding of His providence. And let me add this too. As we're here in the summer and things are a little more lax. I would encourage you to consider even your, your spiritual rhythms of things like Sabbath and silence. Sabbath gets you out of the realm of productivity, performance, and ever searching for approval. Silence enables you to get past all the things driving you in your heart to go make yourself known or fix this or that. And over the summer, to incorporate those rhythms into your life or to think about how you can adjust in those things. May the Lord enable us as a people to overcome anxiety. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gracious word this morning to us. I pray, Father, that you would help us all process this as we each need. You know our individual needs. Lord, there is not a one-size-fits-all in a topic like this. Uh, For some of us, there are things that we need to keep doing uh, to treat our anxiety. Uh, For others of us, um, maybe there's new understandings that we need to seek after. Yet for all of us, we we need to grow (coughs) in letting you be the center of our life and letting go of that role ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.